Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. Hey Amarillo is sponsored this week by Wick Realty. Wick helped me buy and sell a home at this time last year, and in a city filled with realtors and real estate companies, they truly are one of the best. And what I really love is that Wick is invested in seeing Amarillo flourish economically and socially for all groups of people. So if you're buying, selling, building, if you're looking for investment property, or even if you're a first-time homeowner, talk to Katie Wick or one of her outstanding agents. That's wickrealty.com, W-I-E-C-K. Today's guest is Father Scott Rafe. Scott is a longtime Amarillo resident who has served in a variety of pastoral positions in and around the Texas Panhandle. So currently, he's the parish priest at St. Anne's Catholic Church in Canyon. And because this podcast episode comes at the end of 2019, the start of 2020, you know, sort of a pivotal time looking to the new year, it seemed like a good time to be reflective about who we are in this community. What do we do well? What can we improve? And I thought Scott would be an excellent person to answer some of these questions, or at least to talk through them. Also, he's a lifelong priest who spent part of a recent sabbatical driving Uber and Lyft in Amarillo, which I, I don't know, is, is something I find really intriguing. So here's Father Scott Rafe. Father Scott Rafe, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks Thank for being you, here. Jason. It's very good to be here. Thank you. Thanks well, for having me. I, I appreciate it. I know that you're a listener of the show. We've known each other for a long time, Indeed. and uh, I'm, I'm eager to talk to you. Thank you. So wh- what I was telling you before uh, we started recording is that I've talked to, I believe, three Protestant pastors. Yes. I've talked to one universalist yes. minister. I've not spoken to any Catholic well, very good. clergy on the show yet, so you're you're the representative of, uh, well, we of Catholic, your tradition we right We Catholics here. always show up at one point or another, so that's, that's great. Well, and I'm glad I, to be here. I appreciate that, and, and we're the better for it. So, oh, thank you. Before we start, the, the, the thing I like to really ask of every guest is, how did you end up here? So tell me why you're in Amarillo yeah, in the first place. Thank you. Uh, born and raised uh, here. I was actually born in Canyon Okay, uh, back when babies were born in Canyon, when they had a, a bona fide uh, birthing center, you know, at uh, was first Neblet Clinic, became, became Neblet Hospital. Right. It's now a parking lot behind some of my favorite restaurants uh, in Canyon anyway. And then it went to Polidura Hospital. And then eventually, I guess, Canyon was a precursor to what's what's gone on to a, a lot of different rural hospitals. They decided that, especially Canyon, was close enough to Amarillo. Yeah, so they just, they just kind of moved all the hospital operations uh, that direction. But I was raised in in Amarillo. My mom's doctor, my mom and dad lived in Amarillo at the time, but their doctor was in Canyon. So uh, my dad tells the story of coming down the Buffalo Hill into Canyon and getting pulled over by a police officer and saying that my wife is going to have a, you know, have a baby and the police officer saying, get out of here. You <laughs> You're know, going go. the wrong yes. way. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So, so sent him down the hill to, to Canyon. But, uh, but I was at, I was raised, spent all my life in Amarillo up until at least I went to college. And, um, it, it is definitely home for me. Got a lot of uh, family roots in the area, uh, generational roots, uh, a lot of proud people who have made their home in the Texas Panhandle. 
and a very extensive family, of course. Yeah, the, the yeah. Rafe name is one that you encounter pretty often. <laughs> we even have a road. We have a road named it. after us, exactly. yeah, on the, on the way up in the, near the St. Francis community, which is where my great-grandfather actually settled when he moved into the Panhandle from Texas. And so uh hope the sign's still up. I think I have an honorary cousin every once in a while who goes out and steals the sign. I'm sorry, Potter County. But yeah. uh, anyway, uh, but yeah. And then my mom comes from a, a big family as well. And they were the Artho family okay. from the Umbarger Dawn area. And so the Artho family is actually as extensive, if, if maybe not more expensive. They were just a little more uh, prodigious, I guess, in their uh, having children. And so there's, there's, there's a lot of Arthos around as well. So I have a lot of, a lot of family in this area. In fact, when I became a priest, uh, the bishop who assigns us to, you know, different places according to needs and the personality of the priest, etc., he said to me, well, you know, it's, it's customary that we don't send a priest anywhere where he has family. And I said, well, Bishop, I have no idea where you're going to send me because you have I to leave truly the have exactly. So we figured it out, and it's it's been fun along the way. But but I grew up in Amarillo, uh, in the Ridgecrest area okay. of Amarillo. I like to say to people as a as a as a good Catholic boy, I grew up in the uh, the shadow of the beautiful steeple of Paramount Baptist Church. Yeah, uh, just a couple of couple of blocks from there. So. I actually really have beautiful memories, I think, especially of Christmas, of walking out in, the, in our backyard off of Eddy Street in, in the Ridgecrest area and looking at, you know, the beautiful Baptist steeple over there and it being such it a... It's still a pretty uh, prominent yeah, it, landmark Yes, there. it is. And it's, uh, you know, it always looked like a Christmas card to me. And I always imagine, I always try to imagine in a, in a boy's imagination what was going on in the little room. I thought there was a little room up there in the, the steeple area. And I, I, thought, I can tell you what's going on up okay, there. Okay. It's, it's a bunch of pigeons pooping. <laughs> okay. Very good. Yeah, like I've, most I've steeples everywhere. Exactly. Yes, yeah. No bats, but a lot of pigeons. <laughs> so you had so much family here. You grew up here. Um, and you mentioned going to college. Did you leave the area? I did, yes. So uh, I graduated from Alamo Catholic High School, okay. which is now Holy Cross, uh, Catholic Academy. It developed and evolved in, into that name, at least. But when I was in high school, I I pretty much knew that I wanted to be a priest. Okay, and uh, I'm a little different than what the way things are done these days. And even back then, I was uh, a bit of an odd duck. Back then, there were very few. Well, let me just go back. You know, decades ago, when when young Catholic men wanted to be priests. Um, a lot of times they would go away to like boarding school. They would go to a high school seminary and they would begin their formation. So a lot of times, you know, young men were going at 13, 14 years old and starting their formation okay. and their education to become priests. Of course, that model died with the changing times and with Vatican Council II that changed so much in the Catholic Church. And so even during my time, college seminaries were becoming fewer and fewer, but there were still some college seminaries uh, in the United States to where a man out of high school could go and begin not only his academic studies, but he could also be going through formation, what okay. we call spiritual and personal formation, to become a priest. And and so I went to an accredited uh, Catholic college seminary which was in Columbus, Ohio, still okay. is there. And uh, But I just knew going through high school, I, I just wanted to begin the preparation process to become a priest. So I wanted to go to a college where actually I got a history degree, 
when I was in college, but I was already in formation uh, to, you know, to, to become a priest. And when you take that step is the expectation that you will go away, go through formation and then come back to your community or is it like open? You could end up anywhere. No. So mainly, so in the Catholic church, there are different kinds of priests. And so I am what is called a diocesan priest. Okay. Or they also it's a, it's a strange name for us, but they also refer to us as secular priests. It it doesn't sound right, but a but a diocesan priest is is a man who is preparing to become a diocesan priest. Basically, has to be sponsored by a local diocese, a local okay. area that says we're going to sponsor this man. We're going to maybe even pay for his education. And then he is going to come back and commit his life in service to this geographical area that we call a diocese. Now, there are other kinds of priests that we call religious priests. Again, the, the wording is, is a little odd because you would think that a secular priest would be a religious priest as well. But uh, anyway, those are the Franciscans, the, the, the Jesuits, the Dominicans, and those are men who go and study to uh, according to the charism of a particular religious community, whether that's you know, some of them run universities, hospitals, right. missionaries, and those men go off and and go through formation and become brothers or priests for that particular order, and then they go wherever that right. religious order needs them. So they're open to either a larger geographical area, a country, or even or even the world for that matter. But I knew going through. High school, again, with my family connections, I love the Texas Panhandle. I really feel like my vocation, my call to become a priest really was was fed and and fueled by the encouragement and the prayers of the people from this area. I, I pretty much knew in high school, I want to come back home and be a priest here. Okay. And I, I know that I don't want to get too deep into your calling because I know sure. that's always a that's a complicated story you know it's a long lasting story but tell me how a kid in high school figures out this is what I want to do again or begins yeah. to like understand sure. this is what I'm being called sure, to sure yes now again I uh I I want at one time told somebody and I told a community at one time I feel like I have kind of a boring vocation story uh, there was no I, bright light from the heavens or anything no like that? There was no bright light. There was no uh, you know, thump on the head or anything like that. Um, I have wanted to be a Catholic priest since I was in third grade. Wow. I went to Catholic school. I went to St. Joseph's School in Amarillo. I was a really good altar boy, okay. uh, and I was like the first altar boy out of my third grade class. And then I was the first what we call a lector, a reading, reader of the scriptures you know, for children's elementary masses. And I had a, uh, my third grade teacher was a, a nun, a sister, Sister Cordelia. And she pulled me aside one day. And I, and now again, I still remember very vividly looking up at her, her looking me and down at me, being in the doorway of my third grade classroom at St. Joseph's School. In fact, I can, every once in a while when I go visit St. Joseph's, I, I go to that doorway yeah. and I remember very vividly, it still looks pretty much the same. But I remember her saying, you know, Scott, you're really good at what you do over at church. You, you, have you ever thought about being a priest? And I'm not kidding you. It just made perfect sense hmm. to me. I mean, it was like, well, of course, that's, that's what I'm supposed to do. 
came home and told my mom and dad. They didn't laugh at me or tell me I was silly. They um, they also didn't get excited and call the neighbors in and call right. the Pope and tell them, you know, we had a vocation. They, they were very patient. And uh, really, over the years then, that was just, it was kind of my disposition. All my, my mates in elementary school, even in junior, I go back and look at my junior high and, you know, our annual books, you know, at the end of the year. And people would sign, Father Rafe, you remember me when you, you know, become the Pope or whatever. So it was pretty much a constant from there. And I I was always involved in church. I loved being uh, at church with with community, with ceremony, ritual, sacrament. And uh, it just just fit for me. Now, a lot of kids may have a similar experience where they, they're junior high or high school and they think, this is what I'm going to do with my life. And then they go to college or they yes. get in their 20s and they start to reimagine some of yes, that stuff. I yes. mean, this may be too personal of a question, but oh. was there ever a point where you thought, I don't know, maybe, 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 maybe I chose too early or maybe you know, this was my youthful exuberance and as you become <laughs> an adult, you know. Actually, Jason, that's come more in recent years really? for me and uh, just going through midlife and uh, because of a lot of different circumstances. And again, many of those very personal, but uh, I took a couple of years ago, uh, thank goodness, I, with the permission of my bishop, I asked if I could take a sabbatical because I realized that I had been doing this so consistently, so fervently, and uh, without really stepping back and being reflective, and I asked if I could go on a sabbatical, and I spent actually a couple of years out of active ministry. Okay. I never left the priesthood, um, but I felt like I needed to take some time to really think about if this is what I am called to do for the second half of my life. And so that was very fruitful, and I really appreciate it. It's, it's gotten me back to where I am now, but it was a wonderful time to really to have the freedom to reflect, mm-hmm. to pray, to uh, talk to a lot of people. I did things like I drove Uber and Lyft. Uh, I heard about that. <laughs> I, I think maybe you told me that. Yeah, yeah. Um, about the experience of having one of your parishioners get in the car. Indeed, like, oh. indeed. It was a wonderful time for me to step back and really um, get to know even other people outside of the church environment, mm-hmm. those of us who work in church ministry, we hang around with church folk. And uh, sometimes the people we most need to be uh, interfacing with are the people who never walk into a church, never walk into a church office. And so I had a wonderful experience for two years getting to know and getting to meet people I would otherwise have never had the opportunity to know and and meeting really Christ in them mm-hmm. and uh, sharing my relationship with God with them as well. So it was, it was a wonderful time. But um, I also, I took a year off in seminary. It was really, I, I had a teacher at the time. We thought it would be really good for anybody to take some time off, get a job, get an apartment, uh, especially since I went in so young. Do I, I did a little dating during that time wow. to make sure which, you know, I could do a whole podcast on uh, dating debacles. Uh, <laughs> I was kind of the king of, of uh, dating mistakes and interesting stories that way. But even really halfway through that year, uh, back in, it was between college and theological studies, I realized, you know, I'm not, I'm not myself. I want to go, I want to go back to seminary where I really have found my joy and really am more interested in. Okay. I, uh, I'm, I'm curious, especially given your sabbatical and the time you spent with people, 
you know, the fact that right now you're serving as a priest in Canyon, yes. a place that, that you spend a lot of time. Um, you also have served in that capacity in Amarillo. Yes. Can you see any differences in those communities, maybe in terms of the personality of the people or... Um, oh, yes. Is, is there a, beyond just <laughs> the number of people there, is there a different feel in Canyon and the people who live in Canyon versus the people who live in Amarillo? Oh, very much. I, I was telling some people just the other day that actually every parish, every faith community, every church has its own personality. Okay. And uh, like, so among my brother priests and I, you know, just as the faithful kind of know of the personality and the reputation of of the different priests in the area. We also share news and, and information about the different personalities of different communities. Mm-hmm. So even in Amarillo, you know, that that has, you know, uh, over a half dozen Catholic communities, each one of them has kind of a personality and a reputation. So even amongst among those parishes, it's very, it's very different from one to the other. But yes, yeah, so Canyon, where I am right now, I mean, I, I feel like I hit the lottery. It's known as a, an easygoing community, mm-hmm. uh, a very active community, a young community. Uh, we have masses and services are very loud on Sunday mornings because we have lots of beautiful children and babies and young adults. Um, I think just the demographically, a lot of the the newer developments in the area are out, you know, in the Southwest and South Amarillo. So, I mean, if, if somebody hasn't driven down VFW road in a while, I would, right. I would say, do it. You, you just won't believe, believe your eyes. I mean, all of the, the development that's going there. So, you know, we're in a growth area, plus also the university affects, mm-hmm. affects the personality of this parish. We have a number of faculty and staff from West Texas A&M who are, who are here, and uh, and we even have some of the young people. We do have a wonderful Catholic campus ministry, kind of closer to the campus uh, here in Canyon. But some of those young adults inevitably find their way over. Sometimes they just want a little change of scenery. Yeah. Or some of them, you know, when their families visit, they come over to the parish. So we have that uh, influence as well. So it, it's a great community. It's just a lot going on, and a lot of hopes and dreams and plans. So I'm, I'm just fortunate to be here. Where did you serve in Amarillo before? I have been, most of my, I've been priest 25 years. Most of my priesthood, I actually spent out in the rural areas of okay. uh, the Texas panhandle. So I feel like I have a really interesting insight into what life is like in some of our small towns and what Amarillo means to some of our smaller communities. So most of my priesthood was out in the rural areas, which, you know, again, in the rural areas, you have to be more all things to all people. And right. so, uh, for instance, uh, you know, there, there were many days out in the rural areas that I spoke only Spanish uh, okay. because of uh, the immigration of folks from uh, Mexico and, and Central America, many Who are of whom, predominantly, of predominantly Catholic. Catholic. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that, that wonderful opportunity to have been out in those communities. And, uh, and it wasn't always easy because a lot of communities are, you know, in the rural areas are changing, you know, they're, uh, the church, you know, some of the Catholic churches and we have gone from predominantly Anglo, you know, descendants of, you know, German and Irish immigrants who settled those areas to now more Mexican Americans, more Hispanic and, uh, lots of opportunities with, with all of that, but also lots of challenges and to, 
a lot of times in those communities, the priest is the bridge builder, okay. you know, because he knows both communities. He serves both communities. Those two communities don't always connect in ways that we would hope they would connect as church. So, I mean, there was a, there were a lot of challenges about that. So, so I was out in in those areas uh, for most of my priesthood. I came into Amarillo right after a very revered pastor and founding pastor of St. Thomas Parish died, and our diocese, our our leadership, really realized at that point that to have a guy come in and take over permanently would be probably very difficult. That somebody needed to come in and help people grieve mm-hmm. and, you know, let all of that uh, fall where it may make some changes and then be open to then a new guy coming in and, you know, taking a place in a, in a not, none of us in the Catholic priesthood are ever permanently really placed in right. a parish. We have terms uh, that we all know that when we go into a parish, we're going to be there from six to 12 years uh, generally. But anyway, I went into St. Thomas for that year and then, uh, it was after that then I was assigned to St. Mary's Cathedral, okay. which, again, both St. Thomas and St. Mary's are two of the largest Catholic congregations in our diocese, and so had a, had a wonderful uh, experience there at St. Mary's as well, wonderful parish, historic parish, downtown right. Amarillo with all of the opportunities and challenges that that brings, but... I was there for four years, um, but it was during that time then also that I realized that I needed to take a sabbatical and rest, relax, and reflect, okay. really. And uh, and then now at, at St. Anne's in Canyon, you're playing a similar role where you're coming in after the death of a beloved indeed, priest yes, and yes. helping through that grieving yes, process. Yes, after, after Father Bush, uh, who was here for four years, and Canyon was his kind of his intellectual home. Yes, for many years went through WT. Would, you know, was a theologian in his own right, having earned a doctorate in theology, and this was kind of his dream parish. And unfortunately, yeah, his you know contracting cancer during his time here and going through that process of letting go of his life here and and getting ready for eternal life and and how the community accompanied him on all of that was a beautiful story. But yeah, it it is. I guess I've had some experience in doing that, but also it's uh, the community here has been really good about not charging me with the responsibility of helping them with their grief and has been very patient and welcoming. So. I'm curious, as as much as you've talked about the history and the tradition of the Catholic Church here in in this area, whether it's the German immigrants in places like Umbarger yes. or um, you know the Hispanic culture, and what do you know just in terms of the strength of the Catholic Church within this area? Because still, predominantly, it's probably more Protestant, evangelical oh, oh, than by than far, Catholic by far. But that doesn't mean like. <laughs> That that you know that strain of Christianity is not very strong here. So yes. tell me, um, tell me a little bit about that history and, yeah. and sort of what what's the religious outlook here? You know, among sure. among those people, very much so. We like to uh, embrace. In fact, recently there was uh, we were celebrating Thanksgiving Day, and I noticed that several Catholics in the area posted on their Facebook pages. Uh, kind of a reflection on the fact that actually one of the first Thanksgivings in the history of the United States was when a priest named Fray uh, Juan Padilla came with Coronado through this area looking for the cities of gold. Mm-hmm. And 
according to legend. Which was prior to the, the Pilgrims. 50, 1541. And as far as we can tell, you know, through oral history, etc., he celebrated a mass of Thanksgiving, a hmm. Thanksgiving service in some part of Palo Duro Canyon that we're not sure where. So really... If you think about it, one of the the first Thanksgiving, you know, in the United States was, uh, and gosh, and that's not even to think about the Native Americans who, in their spirituality, have sure. been giving thanks to God for, in their own way, for you know, millennia. But in terms of European settlers, you know, it was Coronado and and Father Padilla and the men who came traipsing through this area back then. That uh, you know, there was a Catholic service here back that far, which is pretty remarkable. Um, in terms of modern Catholicism in this area, of course, um, it's it's relatively recent, but really the history of this area is pretty recent. You know, when you look back at the last 100, 150 years, and when people began to populate this area, of course, some of them were Catholic. There's also a little bit of a, of a fun legend that we like to share that in old Tascosa down, you know, one of the original settlements in the area right. that the madam that, you know, had her own uh, house of uh, ill repute or whatever. Uh, I don't know if we should claim this, but that she was a, a Catholic lady, a Catholic okay. Irish, uh, Irish woman. But anyway, so, you know, back then we were really part of the territorial jurisdiction at that point in the late 1800s of the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So at one point, the bishop there realized he needed to start sending priests on trains up here. Hmm. And some of the documentation that we have is just marvelous and fascinating how priests began to come up here on trains and would really just get off of uh, at a stop, just unbeknownst to, to people, sometimes in the middle of the night, sometimes in the middle of a snowstorm, and knock on the nearest door and say, uh, are there any Catholics in this area? Sometimes they had doors, you know, shut in their face uh, because of certain prejudices at the time. And sometimes, actually, there there's beautiful stories about Protestant families actually putting priests up for the night mm. and giving them uh, their parlors or some of the public buildings that were available, and, and you know, and going around and inviting Catholics to come and have mass. And uh, gosh, those those pioneer priests were were pretty amazing. Like I said, some of their their journaling and documentation is really interesting. You know, as far as Amarillo is concerned, you know, you look at 1901, there's this group of nuns that came up here from San Antonio, yeah. Texas, uh, who realized that their medical care was needed in this area as Amarillo. I think the population was about 1,500 in Amarillo, but there was no medical care to speak of. It was a I think his name was Dr. Fly, who was not a uh, Catholic. Right. Yeah, he was, a, I believe, a, a Baptist at the time. Wanted to, you know, welcome those sisters to come up. And uh, gosh, they came up here with their probably what looked like to be very funny outfits yeah. and being not very noticeable on the high plains and, and began a, a hospital up here and really struggled for... You know, I, I just was reading this morning, actually, uh, something we have a Catholic historical newsletter from our local Catholic historical society that goes out. But it actually, one of the uh, editors of one of the local Amarillo newspapers at the time had to write an editorial, basically, I'm paraphrasing, saying, stop being mean to the nuns wow. because they're Catholic. If you're sick, you need them. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, of course, it was during the uh, the flu epidemic a few years later. I think it was the flu or the yellow fever epidemic. 1920s, yes. teens, yes, maybe? Yes, those nuns were on the front lines of that, and that's when they became more utilized, more respected. And of course, St. Anthony's Hospital grew out of that. Back then, too, you know, St. Mary's Academy was built on the outskirts of Amarillo at that time right. for Catholic girls. Of course, it's right in Center City at this point. But uh, so those sisters, those, you know, not only those pioneering priests, but those sisters and those amazing, strong, devout Catholics who came to this area and wanted their Catholic faith to be a part of their life here dug deep and somehow made it happen and sometimes persevered. When it was very difficult, I, I hate to say, but I think I think all of us, I tell Catholics, especially in, in light of modern day prejudices, if we would all be more cognizant of our own history, whether that's our own ethnic history, our own faith history, somewhere along the way, we will find that our ancestors were victim to prejudice of one form or another. Oh, sure. Even if you're just Irish or you have uh, Italian ancestry, when they came to the United States, they were considered unemployable. They were considered untouchable, dirty, whatever it may be. And as far as that's, you know, in connection with that, a lot of Catholics who came to this area, it was not easy. There, there was a lot of uh, anti-Catholic prejudice and just like there was anti-Protestant prejudice in very heavily Catholic sure. areas of the world, but they were they were tough people. You know, even my grandmother who grew up in Amarillo, who later became Catholic after she married my grandfather, you know, she was told she and her friends would walk down Polk Street, actually, uh, in the mornings going to school. And they were instructed that if uh, one of the priests or one of the nuns that kind of lived in that area was walking down the street, they were to cross the other side of the street and not get near them and not talk to them. There was a fear, you know, based probably on just misinformation, Mm -hmm. uh, like like I think all prejudice is based on. Well, if if I remember right, some of those early nuns who came to establish St. Anthony's were originally from Europe, I believe. I, I think a lot of them had very strange German names. <laughs> yes, or, indeed. You know, and, indeed. and so they had that. But but also, in the early days of Amarillo, like, once the railroads came in, that brought in a lot of immigrants from Mexico who were building that. Very And so you so. had this influx of people who were not native speakers and who were Catholic. And so there was that multicultural element yes. of the Catholic Church here and the Catholic presence here from the very beginning. From the very beginning. Uh, Our Lady and, of Guadalupe. You know, Exactly. I, I, I'm so happy that there's a new appreciation for the barrio community going mm-hmm. on in Amarillo. And I certainly hope that the story of Our Lady of Guadalupe is not forgotten and all of that, but that was, for many of those folks, that was not just their church, but it was their it was their community. Yeah. It was their safety. It was their, uh, it's where they got help. It's, uh, um, I know stories of the priest at Our Lady of Guadalupe, not only were they the pastors of some of those people, but sometimes they were the lawyers. They would wow. look at the, you know, they were the, they were the literate, educated people that, that, that people would go to, you know, poor, uneducated people would go to to get advice. And so, you know, you had priests giving people advice from, I'm, of course, I'm exaggerating, but everything, what brand of car to buy to, uh, you know, how to get a stake in in buying your own home or your own land in mm-hmm. that area of town. So, so yeah, that's that's one of the, for me, one of the beauties of Catholicism is, you know, for many centuries, it's 
embraced and incorporated people of all ethnicities and nationalities into its arms or into its uh, its membership. And so, so yeah, so very much, whether it was Irish or Italian or Mexican or German, in mm-hmm. my case, uh, my, ancestor, my ancestors settled in German Catholic communities in this area because that's where they could find sanctuary okay and 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 all the the various meanings of that term to wrap up maybe this section you know you you spoke about how your work in the rural communities of the panhandle yes. um has helped you understand amarillo better yes. and, and now you're working in canyon and, and so having that connection to people maybe outside the city and then also inside the city like what have you learned about who amarillo is who its yes. people are, you know, what aspect of that kind of informs how you how you deal with your parishioners and, and how you serve these yes. communities? Um, you know, I think it's easy for people who are in Amarillo, who are born and raised to really understand how the local economy is driven mm-hmm. by what goes on in the rural areas, whether that's the feedlots, you know, the hog farms, uh, the the growing of corn and wheat and sorghum. You know, all that goes on in some of the rural areas feeds back into Amarillo in one way or another, directly and indirectly. I think it's easy for us to in Amarillo to forget that. Even I, I, I listen to discussions sometimes about taxpayers and who's paying for what, et cetera. And, you know, I, I wish people remembered that a lot of those visitor taxes that pay for things like the building of Hodgetown, sure, or maybe even improvements in the downtown area or uh, the airport or whatever. That that those taxes are being paid by folks in Dalhart and Spearman yeah. and Perryton, who come in for the weekend, who come in yeah. for the weekend, and and who like coming in for the weekend, who appreciate what Amarillo has to offer, who uh, don't necessarily want to live here because they they like where they live, but know that they too are very tied. Um, to Amarillo. Uh, and also I think they, what, what I learn, and maybe, I, I don't know if this is wise to connect it this way either, but I wish people, I think people in small towns understand better our dependence on one another, mm-hmm. that rather than uh, always going and ordering off of amazon.com or, or, you know, going to the big box store, you know, that has a corporate headquarters somewhere far away with stockholders or whatever that, you go and buy from your neighbor hmm. and you, even though it might be more expensive, you are scratching a back that's also going to going to scratch yours. And uh, I think in the city, sometimes we forget that, that true dependence on one another, that our decisions every day by where we shop or how we interact as community or how we treat one another comes back to us in one form or another. And uh, I think people in community, I heard a saying one time in, in small towns, and I guess this would give a spiritual component to that. In small towns, you can't hold a grudge for very long. You have to forgive very quickly because you might very well need that person okay. that you're mad at. And it brings about a spiritual urgency, I think, to let go of things. I'm not saying that small towns don't have their grudges, sure. et cetera, but I think a lot of lessons to be learned in just the community that's formed and that has to be maintained by a lot of intention and a lot of work and a lot of uh, just decision-making, a lot of spirituality, if I can say that. Yeah, so with that spirituality component in mind, I, I want to ask you a question that, that I feel like you're probably equipped to answer. We pride ourselves living here for being independent 
and self-sufficient. You know, it's part of our DNA. It's why we've been here for, you know, a hundred years out in the middle of nowhere. Is that something, it being so baked in to everybody who lives here, is that something that makes it hard to pursue a, a deep spiritual life or to live in community with people? You know, is, is that yes. sort of, we've been fighting isolation all of our <laughs> lives, you know? Is that something that you have to, to deal with maybe? as a- I, I, Yeah, I would say yes or no. There's positives and negatives. I think um, there is a built-in spirituality in the panhandle, and uh, and I need to go retrieve it. I know it's on file somewhere in our diocese, but there was a, a sister, a nun who lived here for many years. Her name was Sister Nellie Rooney, and she actually started our local historical society but she did, and I can't remember if it was a booklet, a pamphlet, a paper on the spirituality of the people of the Texas Panhandle. And uh, she talks about how so much spirituality is tangible for us just in terms of the sky, hmm. the sunsets, nature being so uh, dependent on uh, others for survival, the craziness of the weather. Um, how it can make you feel at one and the same time very small. Mm-hmm. You walk out on a starry night here and tell me you don't feel small, but you can also feel very significant. You can also feel like those stars surround you and make you feel significant in the eyes of God. So I think there's a lot about this area that lends itself to a beautiful spirituality. Now, yes, the rugged independence. Even I know in, in South Texas, uh, some, some of the priests who serve in South Texas uh, kind of refer to the priests who serve up here as that we're cowboy priests, yeah. and that we do have to have a sense of independence, uh, an ability to push through things. Not everything is offered to us on a, on a silver platter. You have to be creative and resourceful, etc. But yes, I would say, especially... In the Catholic Church, in Catholic spirituality, you know, Catholic spirituality is truly based in community. Mm-hmm. Church is community. Church is is not individualistic. Faith is not individualistic. There is an individualistic component, but there's also that deep sense that, yes, you individually are called to be in relationship to God, but that in and of itself involves being in relationship with other people. And I think that that can be a challenge here sometimes. Uh, and with Catholics who yeah. uh, you know who are wonderful in so many ways that that rugged individualism goes a long way in in many wonderful ways, but but to get them to be more eager about forming community and being dependent on others, and giving of themselves in a way that's vulnerable, not just in a way that's helping somebody else, but a way that's vulnerable, yes, can be a challenge. But that's why we'll have a job for the near future, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) This episode of Hey Amarillo Podcast is sponsored by Wick Realty, who sponsors the show through Patreon. Now, I offer this show for free every week week in and week out. And the reason I can do that is because of the generous support of sponsors like WIC. So if you or your business want to support Hamrella Podcast, and if you want to reach my growing base of listeners, then you can visit patreon.com slash You can also get in touch with me if you want to through heyamarello.com. There's an email link there. Just click that and talk to me. I've got a bunch of open sponsorship slots in the coming year and some really exciting guests in store. So hit me up.
Okay, I'm back with Father Scott Rafe. Scott, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. I'm going to ask you eight straight questions as my guest. You get to answer that. All I right. know. Uh, I know you'll be perfectly fine answering that, but no, you okay. know, 15 minute homilies or anything. So <laughs> the first one is is one that I thought of just for you, and so I've not asked this one before. But we're entering a new year, 2020. And people are probably thinking about New Year's resolutions. I wanted to ask you, what would be a good resolution for the people of this area? Maybe if, if each of us could come up with something as a whole community, what, what might that be? I think I would, I, I would title it under the heading of uh, more reflection or reflectiveness. Um, I mean, I think the whole world can benefit from that, but I think that is one of the gifts of spirituality is instead of being people who react and act on everything, on every fear, on every temptation, on every thought, mm-hmm. on uh, every headline, uh, whatever that may be, to to take more time to be reflective. And of course, I'm going to add reflective against the horizon of God to reflect more on, is this really important? Hmm. Is this really true? Is, uh, is this really occurring or not? Is this my fear or my ego speaking? Or is this truly uh, the peace and the joy that God wants for me? And, you know, just even locally here, I think, I think we, we need to do that because I think we are susceptible as well, just like the culture is, to react and to put out our quick opinion or to uh, get bound up in our fearfulness. And I think to take the time, and I think reflection involves taking the time to step back. I cannot tell you how many times during even pastoral counseling, I will beg people, please turn off the TV. Turn off, turn off the, the 24-hour mm-hmm. news. It's hurting you. It's not helping you. Even to just have peace and serenity and to you know, enjoy the simpler things of life, we're all so worried about things that we cannot control yeah. that to, to just to be more and I and reflectiveness is different than introspection. Introspection is from the vantage point of what's this about for me? What am I going to do? Whereas reflectiveness is what are God and I? Uh, how are God and I going to handle this and look at this and be be present to uh to the moments, the challenges and the gifts that are being presented. So yeah, reflectiveness. Okay. That's that's a good word. Okay, yes. What's the most underrated aspect of living in this area? Um, I, you know, really, I would say um, the opportunity to live with less stress. Okay. Uh, I, I don't think we all take advantage it's of It's an opportunity. opportunity. It's, it's not a guarantee, right. Right? It's not a guarantee because... You know what? You know might stress somebody else uh, as to somebody out in the metroplex about having to drive through traffic twenty minutes to the grocery store and then you know spend time in line and trying to get home in traffic. Um, we our five minute run to the grocery store can be stressful if we take it that way. Sure. And I think just a a letting go and allowing the gifts of a more gentle pace, a more an easier way. For us to be grateful for that and to take advantage of it, I think, is uh, is one of the gifts okay. of the area. Yes. What does this area have too much of? I think this area has too much of a lack of curiosity. Okay. And what I mean by that is um, 
whether it be the newcomer or the person of a different religion or a person of a different lifestyle or a person who's just different, a lack of truly being open to the gifts that that person might be bringing and and wanting to, I know we have enough of a horizon in this area, but the horizon is ever in need of being expanded. Hmm. And so I think a lack of curiosity. I say that even in the religious sphere, you know, how often I'm just amazed sometimes how very educated people, sophisticated people, uh, successful people sometimes can have a lack of understanding or curiosity about somebody who comes from a different part of the world or who even has a different religion or whatever and doesn't take as much time to study and know that as much as they would maybe their their own particular interests. And I think I think curiosity is needed. Which goes back to your taking action before reflecting on it. We, exactly. we might immediately say, oh, I understand that person is this, yes. without having the curiosity to figure out who they are yes. beyond whatever label you want to apply to them. One of the, the best lines I've ever heard came from a seminarian that we had in our area was studying to be a priest, but he used to tell the youth who would always say, well, I like this and I don't like this. He said, before you say you don't like it, try to understand it. Hmm. And then you can say you like or don't like. And I, and I love that, that. So seek more understanding okay. before reaching a conclusion or an opinion. What does this area not have enough of? I think, and again, I, I am pointing the finger exactly. I mean, I, I tell my parishioners all the time when I preach, I am speaking to myself more and uh, uh, before anybody else. But I, I don't think we have enough water conservation hmm. in this area. I'm, it just mystifies me why. And again, I'm a born Amarilloan, so I am born with an innate rivalry with that city to our south that starts with L. Um, but I must say one of the things I, I think they're doing, they have water restrictions. Yeah. They, they make no bones about it. They're taking better care of municipal water than, than we are. I just don't understand why we all think we can continue to plant Kentucky bluegrass and and water as if we were in Kentucky or Tennessee and not think that the water is limited and it's precious here and we can we can do so much better. I, w- I, I wish we could do better at being good ancestors to those who come after us. Okay. You know, and our water usage and, and, and other ways of resource usage. Yeah. Okay. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside the area? You know what I like to say? I like to say what you imagine Texas to be like is still alive and well in my area, in Amarillo, Texas. Okay. It's not Dallas. It's not San Antonio. It's not Houston. You're not going to find that there. You're not, uh, those are very urban areas that you might not be able to see the difference between Los Angeles and New York if you go to Dallas. But if you want to see the real Texas, and what I mean is, you know, cowboys still wearing spurs and uh, people still riding horses to the Dairy Queen. Yeah. And a kindness and a, and a, a friendliness Come to Amarillo, Texas. And I, I, I love, I think the Chamber of Commerce had a, had a line a few years ago, step into the real Texas. Right. Amen. Okay. When was the last time you went to Paladuro Canyon? You know, three weeks ago today. All right. Actually, I went out there 
hiking with uh, with my my younger brother. Okay, yeah. sort of your backyard now. So it is, and if I don't take advantage of it, shame on me. But uh, my brother and I have tried to make a commitment to go out there every couple of weeks and discover some of the new trails there. Okay, what's your favorite trail out there? Do you have one? The, oh my gosh, the last one we we hiked was the one of the newer ones, the Rock Rock Garden Trail. Rock Garden Trail. It's my favorite. Oh my goodness, just beautiful. We yeah. just, uh, I mean, every around every corner was a was a new amazing vista or site. I tell people that's a trail that if they think they know what Paladura Canyon is like, that trail is not it. Like I it completely is agree. upends your expectations. I, okay. Well, one, you know, one moment you're you think you're going through a forest and the next moment mm-hmm. there's these these huge boulders that you think it comes out of a Star Wars movie, a mm-hmm. scene in there, and then the next moment, of course, you're looking down on on the canyon and uh You're up on the rim. Yeah. yeah, just incredible. What's your favorite local restaurant? No bones about it. Barrel and Pie. All right. Here in Canyon, Texas, uh, on the square. I know both of the guys who started that, uh, Kevin and Marcus. And I I think it's, if people don't know about it, they're really missing out. I mean, they're very creative and just have not had a bad meal there yet. It's it's really worth the drive to Canyon. Yeah. Uh, And it's, it's good stuff. I agree with that. We've we've made that drive <laughs> just to get, just to eat there, you yeah. know, a number of times. Okay, what's your favorite season in the Texas Panhandle? I think probably spring even though those windy dusty days that spring always brings along. I just uh spring also coincides obviously with the liturgical church season of Easter mm-hmm. and all that goes on in the new life and the the budding flowers and the the greening up of the landscape and just the optimistic mood of people during that time is just uh, very special. Okay. Yeah, I enjoy it. I think a lot of people inside or outside, you yeah. know, the the faith would probably yes, agree that, that that is meaningful for people. Scott, that concludes my eight straight questions. I like to end by asking my guest to endorse something related to the area. So what is one thing that you would like listeners to know about or to experience? If people have not had the opportunity yet to either become familiar with the story and or visit the Church of St. Mary's in Umbarger, Texas. Okay. I'm very uh, partial that way. Both my mom and dad grew up in that church, but I think it is one of the great stories in our country, really, and that uh, just, you know, the story of Italian prisoners of war being interred near Hereford, Texas, and these German Catholic people who needed a church painted and how they came together for six weeks and not only got a church in the inside of a church painted, but formed lifelong friendships, hmm. people who should have been enemies, who formed lifelong friendships because of faith and food and uh, those shared experiences. Uh, you know, there's a wonderful book written about it, Interlude and Umbarger. There's been an opera written about it. I th- Please, somebody out there who has an opportunity to make a great movie, and I think it's waiting to to be shared with others. It is truly uh, a remarkable story in the church to go see those paintings still preserved in that church that those Italian prisoners of war hmm. painted in that church during World War II is uh, a great opportunity awaiting somebody. I love that. And everybody, yes. Well, Father Scott Rafe, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Keep up your good work, Jason. I'll try. And that concludes the show. First, thanks to Father Scott Rafe for being on the podcast and to Wick Realty for sponsoring this episode. 
Thanks, as always, to my editor, Angelina Marie. And of course, I'm incredibly grateful to my executive producers, Ryan Pennington, Daniel Davis, Corey Burns, Jennifer Callahan, Chris Selda, Josh Wood, Patrick Burns, Wes Reeves, Wilson Lemieux, Jason Burr, Katie Linger, and Neil Nossiman. All of those good folks support the show through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. I appreciate them. I appreciate you for listening. Happy New Year, and thank you for supporting this podcast. This has been episode 118. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.